1: It's that time of year again. There's a nip in the air, the holidays are in full swing, and you are halfway through another academic year. And that means Site 2022 is right around the corner. Fear not, Behind the Knife has got you covered. We've got over 28 high-yield Site review episodes and our trusty companion book available on Amazon. Everything you need to dominate the Site. Don't forget to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org where you can easily access all of our podcasts and videos register for free CME, and sign up for the BTK newsletter. And be sure to keep an eye out for our comprehensive oral board review material, which is due out in early 2022. If you appreciate what we're doing here behind the knife, please leave us a five-star review. Now, take a deep breath. You've got this.
2: Okay, let's get started. All right, so we're going to just start with some carotid and vertebral anatomy. So, John, can you just tell me the basics of the anatomy of the vertebral artery?
0: Yeah, the vertebral artery is divided into four different segments. Uh, when we think of V1, it ri- originates off the uh, subclavium, and this uh, continues to the, the foramen of C6. V2 is the foraminal part of the vertebral artery, and this is from the transverse foramen of C6 to C2. And uh, V3 is the, uh, continues from C2 to the dura, and then V4 is considered uh, intracranial.
2: Right. And so what I think the important part of knowing the vertebral artery anatomy is, is which parts are surgically accessible. And that's going to be V1 is surgically accessible coming off the subclavian. It's right off the proximal subclavian is where that comes off. And that's where surgeons can intervene. The rest of it is uh, going to be, if it is going to need intervention, it's going to be by interventional radiology or vascular surgery um, through an endovascular method. Um and so blunt injury, you want to think about blunt cervical spine injury. You want to rule out vertebral artery injury. Okay, we talked about this a little bit last year, but let's just briefly review it because it's on there so much. Uh, Jason, uh, external versus internal carotid, which one has forward flow, which one has triphasic flow?
1: Okay, so your internal carotid is going to have your continuous forward flow. And, and for me, that's easy to, easier to remember when you think about the, the, what the internal carotid su- supplies. Um, so that's really perfusing in your brain. So you're going to want that to have continuous forward flow, whereas the external carotid is going to have a tri- triphasic flow and it has a higher resistance. Um, so it's important to remember that if you have significant facial trauma and you're bleeding a lot, you can always just tie off the external carotid to minimize a bleeding with really minimal sequela. So internal carotid continuous flow, external carotid tri- uh, triphasic flow.
2: Great. <clears throat> And then, so John, uh, you're on vascular right now. Can you just tell us your basic approach, uh, to the carotid artery?
0: Yeah. So, uh, the first step in exposing the carotid artery, and this is going to vary between surgeons, but the first few steps were pretty similar. Uh, so you want to make your incision anterior to the sternocleidomastoid. Uh, you dissect down to subcutaneous subcutaneous tissues and divide the platysma. Uh, once you enter the platysma, your first, uh, a vessel you'll come by is the internal jugular uh, vein. At this point, you want to take the internal internal jugular vein and retract it laterally. Uh, at this at this point, you also want to you'll encounter your facial vein, and you want to ligate the facial vein. It's your gateway to the carotid sheath, and then you'll be encountering your carotid sheath. From this point, you want to open the carotid sheath, uh, and then you would have your exposure of your bifurcation in your, in your internal external carotid artery.
2: Great. So key point there. Facial vein overlies the carotid bifurcation. You're always going to divide that um, in order to expose your carotid. Uh, So, Jason, what nerve lies in the carotid sheath?
1: Uh, That'd be your vagus nerve.
2: And what do you worry about if you damage that?
1: So, uh, generally, you'll get uh, the deficits will be as a result of damage to the recurrent laryngeal nerve. um, So, that'll be hoarseness.
2: Right. And just a quick review from previous episodes can you tell me the course of the right versus
1: the left recurrent laryngeal nerve? So the, uh, right uh, recurrent laryngeal ne- nerve, uh, courses around the subclavian artery, the left, uh, courses around the, um, arch of the aorta. Great. Okay, John, we'll just cover
2: a few more nerves. Uh, uh, what nerve do you, it, do you see right above the bifurcation?
0: This would be the hypoglossal nerve. And then if you would happen to injure injure this during a, uh, uh, CEA or something, you would get tongue deviation to the, the ipsilateral side. Okay. And we have a, uh, high lesion and we're, um,
2: trying to get all the plaque out and we have the intern pulling hard on the retractor up under the mandible.
1: Uh, what injury are we worried about then? Uh, so that'd be uh, damage to the marginal mandibular nerve.
2: Right. And you'd get the, uh, the drooping, which, um, it can be concerning postoperatively for a stroke, but a lot of times can just be a stunning of this nerve. Um, all right, John, uh, where do you see carotid atherosclerosis and why is it there?
0: So if you're looking at a duplex, the most typical part is the, uh, or portion is the carotid bifurcation due to the turbulence there. And if you would have, uh, you know, atherosclerosis here, you could, you know, result in emboli and it doesn't usually thrombose. Right. So the important thing is, is that
2: the, you'll see, you'll open a carotid artery if you haven't done it yet, if you're an intern or something. All the disease is localized right at that bifurcation for the most part. And the way carotid disease and strokes happen is not from a thrombosis of your carotid artery, but emboli coming from these plaques at the bifurcation. So it's important to know that. Um, all right, John, and one more simple thing. Uh, when you're doing a carotid endorectomy, what parts of the carotid are you removing?
0: So you remove the intima and then a portion of the media
2: as well. Okay, let's dive into the surgery part of it. Uh, Jason, uh, you have a patient that has a stroke have a, what amount of carotid disease do they need to have that you will operate on it?
1: Uh, So it's a little bit controversial, but especially for the boards. Um, The way I think about it is if the patient's symptomatic, in other words, they're having TIAs, they're having uh, strokes on that side of the lesion, um, anything greater than 50%, I would say would be an indication for uh, surgical intervention.
2: Great. And then, uh, you know, what are you going to answer on your boards as far as asymptomatic disease?
1: Uh, So, asymptomatic disease, the cutoff for me is probably going to be around 80%. Um, Certainly, those patients, everybody um, with uh, carotid plaques or carotid stenosis need medical management with aspirins and a statin. But uh, as we mentioned, it's a little bit controversial, but for the boards, over 80%, I'm going to operate. Great. So, uh, takeaways, if they have symptomatic
2: disease, so if they have a stroke on the side of a carotid stenosis, it has to be over 50%. For them, for you to operate on it. Asymptomatic disease has to be much higher, 80 to 90%, before you'd operate on an asymptomatic patient. So, John, sometimes we won't get so lucky. They're not going to just tell us what the percent stenosis is, and they might just give us ultrasound findings. So, what would you look for an ultrasound um, to correlate with symptomatic disease that you would operate on?
0: Yeah, typically in these questions, they'll give you, it won't be a borderline type of. Uh, velocity. They'll give you something of severe disease, like greater than 70%. And these typically have velocities greater than uh, 230 uh, centimeters a second.
2: Yeah. And Jason, so I've seen some questions and they they love asking these and a patient had a a right-sided stroke and uh, they have left-sided symptoms. And then they give you, they do the carotid duplex and they have 40% uh, stenosis on that side. Um, What do you want to do?
1: Less than 50% I'm going to manage medically and uh, not operate. Exactly. Um, okay, John, another scenario they like to
2: bring up a lot. A patient has a stroke and you do your duplex and the carotid is completely occluded on that side. What would you like to do?
0: So in this situation, anticoagulation would be your first step, uh, just to prevent propagation. Uh, these typically don't recanalize.
2: Right. And so there is no indication for surgery at least on the ab site and a completely occluded, occluded, carotid, you're going to put these patients on anticoagulation. Uh, I, I, remember, you know, before, you know, as an early intern in second year being amazed by this, why don't you want to open it up, but you can actually cause reperfusion injuries and cause worse problems. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more on our trauma portion of this. Um, so Jason, uh, not many emergent indications to operate on a carotid, but what, what are some things that would make you operate
1: sooner rather than later? So I think it would be the patients that uh, present with um, evolving uh, stroke symptoms or um, so like flexu- fluctuating neurologic symptoms or your, you know, crescendo or evolving uh, TIAs. Great. Um, so,
2: John, as far as uh, the, the way you're going to repair a carotid, uh,
0: what are the two techniques that are commonly used? So two techniques, uh, typically the patch angioplasty or the aversion technique.
2: Right. And then what if they say, you know, the ends come together well, uh, and it doesn't appear that there needs to be a patch, and they just want to, you know, they're kind of hinting at primary closure of the carotid enderectomy on the test. Are you going to accept that answer?
0: No, always patch. Yeah.
2: The patch uh, is has much uh, better long-term patency rate. So you definitely want to do a patch. You do not want a primary closure. Um, and we talked about this a lot. Any vascular patient uh, that has atherosclerotic disease, what is their, but especially after carotid, what is the um, most common cause of non-stroke mortality after carotid endarterectomy?
0: Uh, MI is, your, is the most common.
2: Okay. And uh, so, Jason, you're operating on your carotid, you're peeling out that plaque, and uh, the patient suddenly becomes bradycardic and hypotensive. Uh, what do you want to do?
1: Well, it's probably because I manipulated their carotid bulb and I was dissecting a little too close into that uh, carotid bifurcation and stimulating that. Uh, so um, what I would like to do or ways you can avoid this is by uh, injecting lidoc- lidocaine into the carotid bulb to blunt the vagal response. Um, of the baroreceptors in the uh, carotid sinus.
2: Right, and I, I don't think uh, this next question would be absolutely pertinent, but sometimes they, they may get picky and ask carotid sinus versus carotid body. Um, and so carotid sinus is what is irritated and has the vagal response um, that causes the hypotension. The carotid body has actually O2 sensors. I remember that because body with the o, O2 sensor. So it's actually the carotid sinus that causes the vagal response. Okay, John, so they may give you a patient uh, that has had a stroke, and they ask you when do you want to operate on this patient?
0: Um, can you give us sort of your kind of breakdown? So you can divide it into three different parts: uh, small, moderate, and hemorrhagic stroke. Uh, and a small stroke or just a simple TIA, you want to typically operate within two weeks uh, once the symptom resolved, and this is only occurs if you have less than two hundred grams of brain uh, affected on an MRI. In a moderate stroke, uh, you want to usually operate in four to six weeks. And a hem- hemorrhagic stroke, uh, extend it out a little further at six to eight weeks.
2: Right. And so the idea is you're trying to prevent uh, turning ischemic strokes into hemorrhagic strokes. Um, and the pendulum is swinging a little bit more towards operating early. But for the ab site, I think it's safe to say if, you, if they've had a moderate stroke, um, you can wait about a month and then operate and that'll be safe. If they've had just a small stroke or a TIA, um, th- they're now saying do it sooner rather than later. So do it within two weeks. And if they've had a hemorrhagic stroke, you probably want to wait two months before operating. So Jason, uh, dreaded scenario, you're in the PACU and your patient has right-sided hemiplegia and they
1: didn't have that previous, what do you want to do? I'm assuming this is after my carotid endarterectomy, not after my umbilical hernia repair. <laughs> yes. Okay. So if the patient's in the PACU and they have neurologic symptoms after a carotid endart- endart- endarterectomy, um, on the test especially, I'm taking those patients back to the OR for exploration.
2: Right. And so you're going to evaluate for any intimal flaps or thrombus. Um, and a lot of times you'll start uh, in, the, in the OR looking with ultrasound, but you're going to, on the test, that patient that has a new hemiplegia postoperatively, you're going straight back to the operating room, um, even within 24 hours. Um, so, John, uh, this is always a common question, more common on board on rounds than on, uh, or in the operating room than on the ab site. But what orders you want to clamp the vessels during a carotid endarterectomy and why
0: is this? Yeah, you can remember this with the ice mnemonic, uh, which is internal, uh, common and then external. Right. And so the reason
2: that is, is that the, you want to, the internal is obviously what feeds the brain. So you clamp that first before manipulating the other branches. Um, and then John, how, what order do you release them
0: in? The reverse order. So then you would go external, com- common, and then internal.
2: Right, and hoping to flush any sort of plaque or thrombi out the external and not into the internal. Um, so, Jason, kind of, when do you consider using carotid stenting on the ab site versus a carotid Um
1: Well, that's a tough one. Um, so I think most People are going to try to get them to carotid endarterectomy, but patients who really can't tolerate anesthesia, so they're very just a very, very, very poor surgical candidate, or patients uh, through a combination of their comorbidities and what you anticipate to be a difficult surgery if they've had a neck, prior neck dissection, neck uh, radiation, um, or recurrent disease, I think I would consider it for a carotid stent.
2: Exactly. And now, John, if this patient has had a previous thyroidectomy, so now they've had neck surgery, uh, you know, that, that makes me a little nervous about performing a carotid. Is that a contraindication performing a carotid?
0: No, uh, there is a a relative contraindication if they potentially had, uh, recurrent laryngeal nerve damage in the first operation, but the answer would be no.
2: Great. Great. Okay. So now we're going to go into trauma and carotids. Everyone loves trauma and uh, carotid disease. Uh, Jason, can you just break down the Biffle classification that sometimes can come up?
1: Yeah, so the Biffle grading system is grades one through five. So grade one is just an intimal irregularity with less than twenty five percent narrowing. Grade two, um, dissection or intramural hematoma with greater than twenty five percent narrowing. Type grade three is a pseudoaneurysm. Grade four is occlusion, and grade five is uh, transection or if there's any extravasation.
2: Yeah, and just as a disclaimer here, I went and looked at the most the recent guidelines, and there actually are no good quality studies on uh, most of these there's no level one evidence there's really no level two evidence so all the evidence discussing traumatic carotid injuries is really about level three um so you know it, that, i don't think there's a whole lot they can ask about it <clears throat> but h- here we'll, we'll ask a few questions that i think are are appropriate for the ab site. Um, so john you have blunt trauma and the patient is found to have a carotid dissection on imaging uh, but they have no symptoms it was just found on your cta
0: yeah, you would find most vascular surgeons or sometimes neurosurgeons will be for the intracranial portion of vertebral artery will actually be uh, consulted for this. majority of the time, they actually uh, recommend an aspirin therapy, 325. Uh, in some situations, they, if patient can't tolerate aspirin or has a contraindication to aspirin, uh, then they would recommend anticoagulation, usually with heparin or Lopinox.
2: Great. And now, uh, Jason, you have a patient that has a carotid dissection identified, and they also they also have some uh,
1: neurologic findings uh, associated with that. So, um, if they have a um, uh, blunt trauma and neurosymptoms, that's the patient I'm going to want uh, endovascular intervention and a covered stent. Great.
2: Um, and then, John, to close it out
1: here, uh, you have a patient that
2: has a uh, completed stroke. Um, they, they come in, they had a some kind of neck trauma. Um, CTA shows a thrombose carotid on that side, and uh, you know they have a dense hemiplegia on one side. Um, what are you gonna do for this patient?
0: So I wouldn't operate on this patient. Um, they're unlikely to usually get better with intervention. so they should usually get antithrombic therapy.
2: right. So just kind of,
0: you know there, this is a little controversial, and I've seen questions and
2: score. So, if a patient maybe has presents and they have evolving neurologic symptoms, or in like, you know, essentially thrombosed in front of you or in the operating room, something to that extent, um, you could potentially recanalize the vessel. But if a patient has a completed stroke or has dense hemiplegia, operating is only going to cause problems. So, on the test, I would, a traumatic carotid thrombosis, I would not operate on unless they give you indications that this is a. Uh, disease that is still an evolution and that you could potentially improve upon. But most of these patients are not going to get better and you just want to do antithrombotic therapy, either uh, antiplatelet or heparin. And then, John, there's always some questions on uh, the carotid body tumors. We're not going to get too deep into it here, um, but what are the basic principles of managing carotid body tumors?
0: The easiest answer is just to look for the answer choice that gives you or the answer choices that give you option for resection. Uh, and then you can also yeah. consider embolization uh, prior to surgery, but I have yet to see that on a test.
2: Right. So they'll, they'll, sometimes I've seen they'll give you patients that have, are completely asymptomatic and she has a little lump. Etc. uh, these patients still need their carotid body
1: resected. Um, and then if it's a very large lesion, uh, you can consider embolization prior. And don't be tricked. Sometimes they'll give you the options for a, a biopsy, like a core needle biopsy. Don't, don't do a core needle biopsy of these.
2: Yeah, no, the characteristics are on imaging are, um, define the lesion. So, okay. Uh, Guaranteed, one hundred percent, and we've talked about this in a podcast or two before. This to have this question, Jason, take us through the basic anatomy of the thoracic outlet.
1: Yeah, so you'll see some variant of this. They'll ask you, you know, they'll give you the, the scalenes, the uh, subclavian arteries, the veins, nerves. They'll ask you to order them from anterior to posterior to posterior to anterior. So just just know these. So anterior to posterior in the thoracic outlet, you have your subclavian vein your phrenic nerve, which lies on top of your anterior scalene. Behind your scalene, you have your subclavian artery, your middle scalene, and then your first rib. Great. And we'll dive a little bit more into this in a second.
2: And then, uh, John, what you know puts a patient at risk for thoracic outlet syndrome?
0: So if they have an extra cervical rib is usually the most risk.
2: And, and there's one thing we didn't mention in that anatomy outline. Uh, where, John, do you see the brachial plexus? Where is the brachial plexus in that anatomy there?
0: Uh, The brachial plexus runs along the middle scalene. Uh, It's posterior, just remembering posterior to the subclavian artery. Yeah.
2: Okay. And now we're going to talk about, now we know the thoracic outlet anatomy. Let's talk about uh, problems with thoracic. I feel like this is moderately high yield. Um, So Jason, tell
1: us uh, what the most common type of thoracic outlet syndrome is. So the vast majority are going to be neurogenic uh, thoracic outlet syndrome. This is about 95% of them. So these are um, symptoms which involve the ulnar nerve distribution, so ring and pinky fingers, um, and the symptoms are worst with uh, manipulation. And what are you going to offer these patients? So for neurologic, first, first step is going to be physical therapy, definitely physical therapy. Right. And then, and you know, hey, I've been doing three months of physical therapy.
2: Every time I lift my arm to put boxes up on the Amazon warehouse shelf, my, I
1: get t- tingling in my hand, I can't handle this. So first thing I would do is do um, nerve conduction studies that uh, confirms their neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome. And then if confirmed and they failed, you know, non-operative management, you can operate by removing the first rib and um, a scalenectomy.
0: Yep.
2: Very important to know that. So neurogenic symptoms, physical therapy first, and then if they fail and they have it proved on a, a nerve conduction study, you can offer them a first rib resection and scalenectomy. Okay, uh, John, i uh, seen this once. Um, guy comes in, he's a, generally a weightlifter, um, maybe a swimmer, maybe a pitcher. Uh, comes in with a swollen blue arm. Uh, what is
0: this? So this would be subclavian vein thrombosis or Paget-Schroeder's disease. And uh, how are you gonna diagnose this and then how are you gonna fix this? So your first step which should be a duplex or a venography. Uh, duplex would probably be the answer on the test. Uh, and then this is important to remember that during the, the order of operations for fixing this is that you want to first go catheter-directed thrombolysis uh, to get that clot out of there. It's more kind of an emergent procedure. Uh, and then it'll be followed by first rib resection in the same hospitalization.
2: Yep, I think that's very important. Is they're gonna you you want to thrombolize it, uh, place a thrombolysis catheter, and open that vein up, and then within that same hospital stay, you're going to do the first rib resection, to prevent this from happening again.
1: That's a, that's a very common question. You're going to get that clinical presentation. They're going to give you thrombolysis alone, thrombolysis with rib resection at some interval, or thrombolysis with um, surgery during that hospitalization, and that's going to be the answer.
2: And then just briefly, arterial, very rare to have arterial uh, thoracic outlet syndrome. Um, But this would be a patient that presents with ischemic signs in their hand. They have a, you know, quote unquote, cold arm. Um, So obviously, this is an emergent indication to revascularize the arm. Um, And this can be done, you can do either a thrombectomy um, from the brachial artery. But a lot of times, the artery will be permanently damaged. And you'll need to do an interposition graft uh, with resection of the first rib. Okay, uh, John, real quick. Um, subclavian steel syndrome. We talk about it a lot. Uh, what causes subclavian steel syndrome?
0: Yep. This is a proximal subclavian narrowing, uh, which then results in a reversal of blood flow through the ipsilateral vertebral, uh, which then could lead to your vertebrobasilar basilar symptoms.
2: Yes. And so if you haven't seen this or seen an animation of this or something, please just Google it. It really helps. It's hard to hear it and understand it. Uh, but John, how are you going to fix this?
0: So I've only seen it as a, uh, they give it as a carotid subclavian bypass um, or a uh, subclavian transposition. But there's, you know, in the world of endovascular repair, we can also talk about endovascular recanalization and or stenting.
2: Right. So exactly. So you need to you know, one way or another, open up the uh, subclavian. In the past, they used to do subclavian endoterectomies, but that ended up being too morbid. So now the more common answer is the carotid subclavian bypass. Um, I I don't think they're going to give you the option between carotid subclavian bypass and endovascular repair. It'll be one or the other, but one way or another, you need to um, fix the occlusion of the proximal subclavian artery. Okay, we talked about dialysis access a significant amount in the first one, our first vascular uh, podcast last year. We're just going to talk about a few things. I've seen a lot of questions recently about catheter management. Jason's seen questions a lot about peritoneal dialysis, which we're actually going to talk about in a later podcast. In regards to catheters, uh, Jason, can you talk about just... What are the, the options of catheters? And if you are placing a temporary catheter, you have a patient that you operated on when into acute renal failure, what's the amount of time you want to leave a temporary catheter in?
1: Sure. So if, if we're talking about just catheters and before we talk about other forms of dialysis access, there, there are temporary and there are long-term dialysis, dialysis catheters. So your temporary catheters are really designed to be left in for three weeks or left, three weeks or less. Um, and then you have long term catheters which differ in the fact that they're they're double lumen, they're cuffed, they're tunneled, so they can really be they can really be uh, maintained for a longer time period.
2: Right. so the, the temporary catheters are the ones that are in the ICU, they're the generally the Maherkers, uh I'm sure many of you have placed. Uh, the tunneled catheters are generally placed by interventional radiology. and like Jason said, they're cuffed, they're tunneled, they're double lumen, uh, and they can uh, last much longer. Uh, so, John, your IR, you got a new IR doc there or something, they say, where do you want us to place this uh, long-term catheter?
0: So, your first go-to, and they, they give you this question, should be your uh, right IJ, um, so it gives you direct access to the uh, the right atrium.
2: Right, and this is an important question to not just blow off. Uh, so, Jason, when you're thinking about this, what else are you thinking about other than the right atrium as far as placing uh, dialys- temporary dialysis access?
1: Uh, so you want to think about your, what your future like permanent access is going to be. So think about hand dominance, where you plan on doing your procedures. So you want to, what you really want to avoid is central venous stenosis on the side, uh, where you plan on doing your fistula. Great.
2: And, uh, we talk about the fistula first and, uh, some managing that in the first podcast. So please refer to that, uh, to learn a bit more about that. Uh, John, fasciotomies, a common question, probably one point on the website here. Um, tell me where you make your, so we're talking about lower um, extremity fasciotomies uh, for compartment syndrome. Where do you make
0: your incisions? To make, uh, to access the anterior and lateral compartments, you would make an incision uh, lateral to the tibia about halfway between the tibia and fibula. Uh, this can be an H-type incision or just uh, big longitudinal incisions. Uh, and this would help you access to your anterior and lateral compartments.
2: Right. And, and to be clear, the h type incision is on the fascia once you've opened. so you'll have a you know a single skin incision, make it as long as possible. And then you want to fully open the anterior and lateral compartments. Uh, you do the h type. A lot of times people can leave the h type or I'm sorry, the anterior compartment uh, not fully decompressed and actually put um, just the incisions on the the lateral compartment because it's such a large compartment. Um, so John, with the lateral incision, what nerve do you worry about injuring?
0: Yeah. I've seen this question a few times, the superficial peroneal nerve, uh, and you, they would present a patient who has difficulties with foot aversion. And
2: in, in what part of the leg is that going to be the distal part of the incision or wh- where are you going to injure that nerve at? It's typically uh, more proximal. Right. Near the fibular head is where you're going to see that nerve and you have to be careful. And so, Jason. Uh, so now you've you've already made your incision. You've opened up your anterior and lateral compartments with your lateral incision. Now you're doing your your medial incision.
1: Where are you going to make this incision, and what compartments are you opening with this? So for for this, you want to make incision two centimeters or a couple finger breaths posterior to the medial tibia. So you want to um, make sure that the deep posterior compartment has been fully decompressed. So both the superficial and the and the deep posterior compartments are decompressed through the medial incision. The way you do this, the way you get to the deep posterior compartment is by being sure you take the soleus off the back of the tibia.
2: Right. And it's kind of a, a brute maneuver, um, kind of tearing that soleus off the tibia, but that is one of the most commonly missed um, compartments. So it's very important to do that. And we'll talk a little bit more about the contents of the uh, compartments a little bit later here. Uh, so, just real briefly, um, John, we're going to go through thoracic aorta. Just a few questions I've seen on this. With blunt uh, thoracic injury, where do you see the injury?
0: Because the aorta is tethered at the ligamentum arteriosum, you typically see an injury there, such as a pseudoaneurysm. aneurysm.
2: Right. And this is generally just distal to left subclavian artery, um, and this is where you're going to... Um, find those big pseudoaneurysms in in patients with blunt thoracic injury. And if they have a total uh, transection at this point, they're obviously not going to make it to the hospital. So most of the time you're going to see patients with pseudoaneurysms here. Um, Jason, briefly, uh, descending aortic aneurysms, you know, ascending aortic aneurysms isn't, uh, they're about the same criteria, but that's managed more on the cardiothoracic side of the house. But on the descending aortic aneurysms, distal to left subclavian, uh,
1: what are your criteria for repairing aneurysms? So typically the cutoff is uh, 5.5, um, and those are for your descending thoracic aneurysms that are amenable to TVAR, endovascular repair. Um, if for whatever reason you can't, they're not amenable to uh, endovascular repair, the cutoff's a little bit higher, so around 6.5.
2: And so, like we've discussed, uh, you want to worry about paraplegia about a five percent risk in endovas- for endovascular pairs versus twenty percent for open. So these are these can be very morbid procedures, but um, you know it's an important thing to fix if you you do have it. And so if you do, and uh, Dr. Aronson talks about in the first episode, if you're going to have a, gr- a stent cover T8 to L1, this gives them the highest risk of paraplegia. And so you want if it's in that area, you want to make sure you're placing a lumbar drain. Um, due to the high risk of paraplegia. Okay, next topic. We're going to talk about the abdomen. Back to where we're a little more comfortable here. Uh, Acute mesenteric ischemia. Very common topic. Guaranteed to have a question on this. Uh, If you probably this and carotid disease would be the two questions you get on the ab site as far as vascular disease goes. So John, what are the four types just briefly? Yep.
0: Uh, So embolic, thrombotic, venous thrombosis, and then you have your NOMI or non-occlusive mesenteric ischemia. Right. And we're going to spend
2: most of our time talking about the embolic and thrombotic versions of this. Um, so the embolic is the most common. They likely have atrial fibrillation or endocarditis. Um, and then they develop acute sudden abdominal pain out of proportion to exam. Thing is here, a lot of these patients have embolic disease. They don't really have the history of chronic vascular disease, uh, weight loss, et cetera. They generally were doing fine and all of a sudden have sudden abdominal pain. That's going to key you off to the embolic disease. Um, so, Jason, tell me
1: how you diagnose this and how you approach this. Uh, so, you know, first, you as you said, you're going to be worried about patients who come in who they're going to give you a history of AFib. They're going to have horrible abdominal pain. It's going to be, you know, the characteristic out of proportion to physical exam. Uh, my first key, my, my first step to diagnosis is going to be a CTA if that's an option on the test. Great. And, uh, they
2: say, what is your next step in this patient? They, the radiology calls you and says, yep, there's a embolus in the mid-SMA, um, and you're spinning up the OR.
1: What do you want to do? Yeah, so this is this key. That next step is going to be to heparinize a patient.
2: Right. Um,
1: Jason, one other thing. Can you talk about
2: the distribution of the disease in a thrombotic
1: versus an embolic um, SMA uh, thrombosis? Yeah, so um, thrombotic is going to be uh, affects more proximal on the SMA. So it's going to really affect the ostium. So these are people that are going to have like longstanding vascular disease. It's going to be more insidious in onset, whereas, you know, your embolic disease is going to be very, very acute. It's going to be more distal in the SMA. And for that reason, you have kind of a characteristic jejunal sparing um, of the ischemic disease in the bowel. Great, exactly. So, an SMA embolus,
2: the patient has AFib, it'll lodge 3 to 10 centimeters distal in the SMA, and you'll have some proximal jejunal sparing, whereas thrombosis, you'll just have your entire small bowel ischemic. Um, so, John, how do you identify your SMA in the operating room?
0: Yep, I had this question on oral boards last time. So, you want to go in, you lift the transverse colon a cephalad, and you just follow the base of the transverse mesocolon uh, uh, down until you find a ligament of trites. And then the SMA will be lying right to the right of that. Um, and if you need to get to the SMA origin, uh, then you can mobilize the ligament of trites. Right. And so I think this is
2: uh, definitely the correct answer for the ab site. Um, you can also access the origin of the SMA, especially if you're going to do an SMA bypass by doing a Maddox maneuver. That, but for an embolus, you're really going to want to get to the mid-portion of the SMA, and this is a much better approach to it by lis- lifting the transverse colon. Um, okay, so now we know um, SMA embolus. Um, you're going to do make a transverse incision in the SMA. You're going to use a Fogarty catheter to remove the clot, and then you'll close your arteriotomy. And once that is complete, that is when... And you re- reperfuse the bowel. You'll give it twenty minutes warm clo- warm lap pads over the bowel, and reassess the bowel at that point to determine which bowel needs to be resected. So I've seen questions on that where they say, "Do you, you have you know dusky bowel throughout the entire abdomen? Do you want to resect and then re- restore perfusion? You want to re- restore perfusion firsthand and then reevaluate the bowel after that." So, Jason, what if uh, you know the bowel is? You've restored. You did a great embolectomy. Uh, Some of the bowel is still questionable, though, and the patient's a little sick. What do you want to do?
1: Um, So this is where, um, like I say, be sure you restore blood flow and then reevaluate. So you you can see if it pinks up. You can use your adjuncts, like your intraoperative Doppler. You can use your Woods lamp with your fluorescein. Some of the newer technologies, like Spy, and all those things, you can take a look at the bowel. Um, anything is Frank is dead I mean you resect that certainly um, anything that's questionable or you're not sure about there's nothing wrong with um, leaving the abdomen open going to the ICU resuscitating coming back within 24 hours for your uh, second look laparotomy
2: great exactly so um, any question of bowel in, in, in a lot of these patients they're going you're going to leave the abdomen open and you're going to uh, reevaluate in 12 to 24 hours so I think that will definitely be the answer on the test is to leave the abdomen open and reevaluate um, one thing I didn't talk about is quite the therapy of, of treating thrombotic disease, not as absite pertinent, but thrombotic disease is where you, you know, they have this chronic vascular disease. Their celiac axis is likely to be diseased. Their SMA is heavily diseased. Their aorta throughout is diseased. These are the patients you're going to consider doing bypass grafts, whether it's a, um, iliac retrograde bypass to the celiac and SMA, um, or a super celiac bypass to the celiac and SMA, but it's generally you're going to likely bypass both the celiac and SMA in most of these patients because it is a um, generalized disease process, not a focal embolus like you have in embolic disease. So, um, just a quick point on that in case it does come up on your test, uh, John. Uh, one other one that comes up um, is mesenteric venous thrombosis. Uh,
0: what do you see in these patients? Now, these are the patients who have less of an acute process. They won't have that sudden onset pain. They'll have days of abdominal pain, possibly di- bloody diarrhea, uh, history of bloating. Uh, some patients will also have a history of weight loss. Um, and they usually will generally have some underlying hypercoagulable state as well. It's something in their, in their history they'll, they'll tell you. Great. And uh, what will you see on a CT scan? So you'll see diffuse bowel wall thickening, mesenteric edema, uh, possible thrombosis of the SMV, uh, and then delayed filling of the portal vein.
2: All right. And are you uh, calling the OR to um, rush them back when you get this, when the radiology calls you this
0: diagnosis? No, not unless there's obvious signs of dead bowel, uh, pneumoperitoneum, extreme edema, free fluid. You just just heparinize these patients and uh, don't use thrombotic or thrombolytics. excuse me.
2: Right. So mesenteric uh, venous thrombosis, uh, you're going to attempt uh, heparinizing these patients. And a lot of these patients will be able to recanalize and will improve, but obviously these are critically ill patients. It will be observing in the ICU, serial abdominal exams and a heparin drip um, and making sure that they do not get worse. Okay. So we've covered embolic disease. We've covered thrombotic disease. Those are the ones you're going to get questions on. And um, Then you have the mesenteric venous disease, which is a little less common and less pertinent. Jason, quickly, NOMI, what is NOMI and what patients do you see this in?
1: So, NOMI, or non-occlusive mesenteric ischemia, affects your extremely ill ICU patient, multiple pressures, um, that they develop abdominal pain and distension, um, a lot of times you'll see it in patients who have uh, cardiac failure, but can really be seen in any patients with shock or have you know poor forward f- forward flow. Um, it's going to affect your watershed area, so your Griffiths and Sudex point at the splenic flexure or the upper rectum. Um, Specifically on the boards, the answer is not typically going to be an operation unless they have you know frank perforation, necrosis that needs to be addressed. But it's going to be uh, resuscitation, potentially dobutamine. Um, it, it specifically, if it's cardiac failure,s um, is is the underlying etiology um, and antibiotics. Uh, the overall goal is to improve your forward flow or improve your cardiac output. Um, uh, as I said, um, the only indications for operating on these patients is going to be, uh, frank necrosis.
2: Yeah. You're in a rock and a hard place when you get consulted on these patients. Um, so, um, definitely, uh, attempt not to operate on these patients, improve their flow. That does it for vascular part one of 2018. Uh, John, but before we end, we have to do our quick hits, um, So what is the most common site of an upper extremity embolus to lodge?
0: Yep, typically it's the brachial artery. You're going to want to pick more distally, but it is the brachial artery. Right. And
2: Jason, how about for the lower extremity, patient has AFib, they throw off an embolus, where is it most likely to lodge?
1: So that's going to be your CFA or common femoral artery, um, usually uh, right at the bifurcation. Right.
2: And so this is when you have acute changes in the diameter of vessels is where that these uh, these emboli are going to lodge. <clears throat> okay, uh, John, a patient with a ruptured AAA with hypotension is getting a
0: crash laparotomy. Where should you get proximal control? So, ciliac aorta. Uh, you want to go through the gastrohepatic ligament uh, underneath the crus of the diaphragm, and you want to press the aorta directly on the spine until you can get an aorta clamp on. Great, um, Jason. A patient, you're at the
2: major medical center in town and uh there's a you know rupturing AAA um, patient is moderately stable um they don't have this vascular surgeon in-house and they're transferring them to you what do you tell they say what would you like us to do
1: um as far as his blood pressure goes and transfer
2: what are you going to tell that transfer center
1: Uh, So this is um, analogous to what we see in our trauma patients while uh, us military members are deployed overseas, but we want to do the permissive hypotension. So you don't need to resuscitate these patients to a normal blood pressure. Uh, You want to maintain them at a systolic blood pressure around 80 to 100.
2: Great. And then, John, what's the most common organism in graft infections?
0: Yep, stap epidermis, which is usually just present on
2: your skin. Great. Um, And then... Jason, treatment for popliteal entrapment syndrome.
1: Uh, So popliteal entrapment syndrome is treated by resecting the medial head of the gastroc.
0: All right. Well, that does it for our part one of our vascular podcast. Uh, Please follow up with part two directly after this one.
1: Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review.